Okay, got wow. It. To have the privilege to speak to a history maker is something that makes my day. <laughs> so today I'm so honored to have honorary Judge Sandra Sims here in the studio with us today. Welcome, welcome Judge Sims to K2A. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And so it's nice to be called Judge, but actually I'm retired. But I am a part of the History Makers, and that's a part of the okay. uh, uh, collection that's uh, done at the uh, uh, Library of Congress. It's an actual organization called the History Makers. Oh, okay. And it is a collection. It is an official History Makers, a collection of interviews with um, uh, African-American people <laughs> in the United States. There's over 3,000 interviews. Uh, basically chronicling uh, uh, a wide range of topics and uh, subjects and people in this country uh, that may not necessarily be covered in our history books. So there are, there are they cover all areas uh, from the arts, entertainment, uh, law, justice, academics, and I'm really honored to be a part of it. It's actually called the History Makers. Wow. And there are over 3,000 interviews. And there were just recently they came to Hawaii and there were nine people in Hawaii interviewed as a part of that. It was a big program. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, Chief Justice Rectenwald participated, you know, came to the event. It's a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And among those people that were history makers was Daphne Barbie, uh, uh, Dr. Takara, Catherine mm -hmm. Takara, mm -hmm. Helen Stewart. Wally Amos, um, Dr. Miles Jackson, who was at the University of Hawaii, and there was a couple of others I forgot now. They're kind of exciting. So when you said history makers, I thought you were looking at that that uh, well on multiple that levels, program. You know, because yeah. thank you for giving me that specific information. But for people who don't know how and why you are a history maker, um, you were the first African American female judge here in Hawaii. And um, that's correct. That was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a, maybe for you a small part of your life, but it's pivotal and it's so important. And maybe we can just start with the idea of history making uh, because you had mentioned like the reason they created this history maker is because of the lack of. Um, you know, to, to these silent spaces of, of these untold histories yeah, yeah. fall through the cracks in these dominant history books, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's the part of it. It's a, it's, it, I was, I mean, I, I, I knew about it. And so when they contacted me and some of the others here, I mean, it was certainly an honor to be contacted and asked to be a part of it. But I, I am familiar with their work. Um, yeah. because I knew of people who were, you know, included in that collection. But yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's interviews. Um, the interviews were done here. They send out someone to do all that. And my interview, I had the honor of having my interview done at the uh, Supreme Court, as a matter of fact. Wow. Uh, they're video interviews, so you can actually see them. And uh, uh, so it was kind of, it was, it was a really, um, it was really quite an occasion. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's some, yeah. no, no small feat to be proud of. So let's back up a little bit about, you know, yes. how your, your, your upbringing. So you were born in Chicago, but you moved to Hawaii later in 1978. Uh, so there's a huge chunk of time in between that time, which was very historically significant, right? You, you lived through a grew up and I know, um, you know, Chicago is not necessarily 
the you know the segregated South, but you most I'm, I'm wondering how your upbringing of understanding the racial laws at the time had informed you of your place as a, a girl of color at the time. Can we start there? Yeah, I, it's, it's yeah. Of course, Chicago's not the segregated South, but it's no. the segregated North. <laughs> okay. So while we don't have the, you know, there were not these explicit, you know, rules that you see and you saw when you were from your experience in the South. There were some clearly, um, uh, clearly drawn lines that people understood, uh, but uh, and that included things like housing, um, you know, segregated housing redlining occurs so yeah. certain communities you know you couldn't um i mean you just knew it it wasn't like a sign saying don't come in here but there were um you know clear you know jobs um you know that kind of discrimination was a big part of of uh you know growing up there but uh i think but you also had in chicago at least i certainly had a very very strong um family community and church community that was very, very supportive of, of all of us really, as we you know, went through these spaces. So let's say for example, um, I went to Hyde Park High School, which at that time was you know, considered one of the sort of premier high schools in the city because it is, it serviced um, the Hyde Park community where the University of Chicago is located. Okay. So you, know, you had that, but it wasn't integrated. It was one of the few, Hyde Park was one, and still is, one of the few integrated communities, fully integrated communities in Chicago. I didn't live in Hyde Park, but I went to the school. And so there, for example, I know our church was situated near there. And the church provided a lot of support, you know, for, um, you know, Black students in the various schools. You know, we have these programs and things at the church that you could that were encouraged that people participated in um you know educational support that sort of thing so that was always there um this is a high school or elementary school Hyde Park high school high school Hyde okay. Park high school so when it's you were in there. school yeah when you were there as a high school student were most of your friends um of any specific community like did you have black friends white friends Asian friends you know? most of my friends actually were family because it came out of our you know it was a very very strong church background okay I mean the, the church was founded by my grandfather so it was a ah. big family thing anyway so the I mean I had friends at the high school but the majority of the social relationships the social network Mm -hmm. came from that church community, which was also very active in civil rights events. So that was another piece of it. So, so that was wrong uh, community because the church is where you got, you know, all of the information and support for being involved in civil rights. I mean, you know, Dr. King spoke at our church. And wow. so that was a big, that was a big thing uh, when yeah. he came to Chicago to kind of expose the, you know, segregation and the, you know, the, the problems that were there, uh, he came to our church and spoke, which was a huge event. I mean, I remember it. I was in high school at the time and I remember it distinctly because it was that big of a deal <laughs> for Martin Luther King to come to your, uh, you yeah. know, to come to your community first off yeah. and then to come specifically to your church. I mean, our minister was very involved in many of the, um, um, civil rights activities in Chicago anyway. So he was a leader in that. So, right. yeah. so uh, in your family, 
environment and your community environment, all these big influences in your life during that period. Yeah, um, there, were yes. there many discussions around what was going on? I mean, obviously, the civil rights movement must have kind of been overwhelmingly uh, important in terms of conversation. I, yeah, it was overwhelmingly important, but I don't think we had to do a lot of discussing. It was like, you know, you just got to do it. You got to be involved. There's a, you know, there's a march here, there's a meeting there, there's whatever. And you just, I don't know that it was spent so much time, it's, you know, analyzing what had to be done, but I think it was clear that this was a movement that was taking place uh, even here. And, you know, whether you were involved in it from the community church perspective, or there was a very strong and active, you know, Black Panther um, yeah. group there. Um, you know, Fred Hampton was based in Chicago. He was a part of that. Wow. So, and then I remember when he passed away, I was in, he was his, um, I was in college at the time at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And that day was like, it sticks out, December 4th, 1969. I know the date. Wow. Um, when he was, you know, assassinated basically right down the street from the school, from the, from the campus. He lived on the West side and it was near the campus of the University of Illinois uh, when that occurred. They did the raid that morning and yeah. Wow. So, so you, there's, yeah. there was that, so yeah. yeah all these kind of historical events and troubling violences that still are playing out today. But at that time, you know, again, going back to, I'm thinking of a high school student, college student, you know, um, our listeners who are young college students listening, you know, if they had lived through civil rights or had these kind of, the, these movements in front of their faces, you know, how does that influence the way you um, decide on your, your responsibility almost uh, in your I life? Think that's, I, you know, I think it was, the responsibility was inherent. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you had to sit and go like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I mean, you kind of know what you're, you're supposed to do something, even if it meant as a, you know, as a, as a young black person, just the responsibility of completing your education, you know, going, getting involved in something that moved you forward for the future. So the, the option of like not doing anything was just not there. You know what I mean? So it wasn't pushed by your parents. They weren't like trying to be that helicopter parent for you to. No, no, no. There's no helicopter. There's no. No, I mean, this is just who we, where we lived. I mean, if we're gonna, you know, my, my parents, my my dad grew up in a very very he didn't grow up in Chicago, a very very segregated community, in Bloomington, Illinois. So he came to Chicago to kind of get away from that. He was in that more thing that you're talking about, like that occurred in the South. But in Chicago, I think it was just under understood that. There are things that you're just supposed to do. I mean, you know, college is, I mean, I was the first in my immediate family to go to college, but it was understood that that was just going to happen. I mean, that wasn't like a discussion, like you've got to go. It's like, you know, we, you know what I mean? You kind of knew we're in the midst of a lot of change occurring. And so hmm. you just did what you need to do. I'll give you another example. It's like my brother, who's a year younger than me. Okay. He, uh, when he came out of, high school. Um, he had no intentions of going to college. But the thing that he got involved in was a program that the Urban League was doing to encourage, um, not encourage, but to <laughs> force Blacks to be involved in the construction industry, which is very, very segregated because of unions. Unions did not allow, wow. you know, Blacks in and so forth. So he got involved. My mother was, you know, active with different, organ, you know, Urban League, all that kind of stuff. And she knew, learned of this program where the Urban League was working with um, some of the unions 
and some of the trade accounts, trade schools mm -hmm. to get, um, you know, Blacks involved in. First off, you had to be a union member to work in Chicago anyway. So mm -hmm. that had to be the first thing. And so there was this big push by the Urban League and um, who else was it? Um, mainly the Urban, Chicago Urban League. Okay. Um, to push for that. So he got involved in that. And that became his life's work because they're among the, he was one of the first union, you know, black union carpenters because, you know, people worked in sort of under the table things, but you don't get those union wages if you're not in the union. Yeah. I'm glad you so brought that up. That was word. very strong. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what he did. And so in other words, what I'm trying to get at is that, I mean, we had to do something. Everybody had to do something. You didn't have this option of like, I'm just going to sit here and wait till. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you also bring up another point. I mean, I think that's kind of um, important to bring out the fact that your brother went into um, a different area, you know, trade construction is something like, you know, in the academic space, people think, okay, how do you define success? How do you define achievement? And I feel like there's a large conversation missing on what it means to succeed and why it's all based around academics. I'm not saying, I mean, yeah. it's ironic because we are in an academic space talking about this, but at the same time, we seem to dismiss what a company. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think there is, uh, and, I, and, and, I, and I think there is that sort of overwhelming thing that says it has to be college. But I think we knew then it didn't, because everybody wasn't going to go, right, right, to college. So there, that was sort of my family rule was you're not going to go to college, you're going to do something else. Right. And you've got to find something else you now. Something else. Yeah. <laughs> you got to yeah. do it now. You know, if, if yeah. and so that was another opportunity, but it was also an, a, a chance to kind of break open a field that was really, really closed, you know, to Blacks at that time. We're talking about 1967. Um, and this is during the daily era, you know, the, the politics of Chicago at that time is mm, yeah. kind of notorious in and of itself. Um, I mean, we talk about politics here, but I think there's nothing quite to compare with Chicago politics. Well, <laughs> along with the- whole other subject. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say, we can turn this into a whole thing about Chicago politics through films, through kind oh, of- Oh yeah, I mean, you you whole, you know, come on. You know, yeah, well, you know. how about this? Let's take a quick <laughs> break. Um, we'll have people digest, you know, what we're just kind of like brewing here, talking about um, racialized spaces, talking about you growing up in a time that is really important uh, and, and seeing it play out today and come bringing it back to Hawaii and how we address anti-Black racism here in Hawaii. I'd like to address that too. So if people are just tuning in, I'm talking to, um, the wonderful Sandra Sims, who is the first African-American uh, female judge here in Hawaii. And we're going to talk more about that process. Uh, so don't go away. Okay. Welcome back. We are here. I'm talking to Judge Sandra Sims. And I know you say it's a previous thing, but you're still a judge in my head and you're always with me <laughs> because your view from the bench. I mean, speaking of which, um, I didn't really elaborate on or didn't even introduce properly uh, your memoir um, called Tales from the Bench, which you had written in 2012. Well, we could talk a little bit about that, but mm -hmm. also to let our audience and leader, uh, readers, listeners know that um, you are also a member of the Soroptimus International of Waikiki. 
um, the Honolulu Museum of, of Art, the Hawaii State Bar Association, National Bar Association of Afri African American Lawyers Association of Hawaii, uh, and Links Incorporated, which you were president of, and you've received uh, many governmental appointments, including State Council, Mental Health, and the Board of Directors of the Mental Health America of Hawaii. So this is just a little taste of your accomplishments. And I, I think we can never fully encapsulate all of your accomplishments here in this small, small time. But um, I'd love to talk to you about your experience in Hawaii, because after coming from a place such a crazy time in Chicago, like you had mentioned before our break, the, the, the politics of the 60s in Chicago, and how does that shape you and your perspective um, as a judge and as a woman of color coming to Hawaii at the, in the 70s? What did that transition yeah. mean to you? It's a good question. It's a good question. And it's something I've not really uh, thought about in terms of, you know, articulating because it was just such a given. I mean, I don't know that it was something that we had to spend time on. It was like you understood. It, it was just an understanding that, you know, you're going to be involved. I mean, into, even in terms of the politics, um, because it's such, you know, the Democratic Party was just so strong there. And then it's so very, very racialized. So much of the focus has, was always and still is of getting involved in the political process. You have to be involved in the political process. You don't have the option of opting out because you've got to move forward. This is like the 60s. If you don't do this, then you're what's going to happen to us as a people if we don't take a stance or take, you know, a, a, a position on things. I mean, that was also the time when the, you know, Operation Push of, you know, Reverend uh, Jesse Jackson was chair of that. And that was a huge organization. That was a huge um, influence in, in, aside from the church, you had the push, you had the urban leagues, you had the, you know, all of the black organizations within the black community continually pushing to have, you know, our voices heard. I mean, it was a struggle, but it was something that was always there. So it wasn't like, let's think about it or wonder what we're going to do next. It's right. There's just so, more to do. You have to do it. It's 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 stuff to do. So I mean, part of going into law was um, kind of looking at okay, that's maybe a one avenue. But I mean, even when I started law school, there were so few. I mean, there's like only a handful of black students in in the law school when I started. And were they mostly men? Like, what what was the percentage of female black students? We're talking a I'm saying a handful. We're talking you know, five or 10 people, okay? That's yeah. not, you know, <laughs> in yeah. later years, you know, DePaul made the push to diversify its its um, um, student body and, and most of the law schools did, but I started law school before that push began. Mm. So I started in 72, they weren't, there was no, um, I mean, there wasn't even affirmative action in uh, undergraduates at that time. Right. So you were so pretty, yeah. So you know you, there wasn't ethnic studies. There wasn't African American studies. I mean, all of that was just getting going. There was just you know in terms of even for women's studies, it was unheard of. So I I'm, I'm old, Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but never, no, no, no. But what I'm my point is that, that you know things that we think of as being um, sort of taken for granted, like things like, you know, like 
ethnic studies here or ethnic studies in any of the colleges, African-American studies. Yeah. It was no such thing. Right, right. Well, <laughs> but, they didn't have I mean, labels for it. So did you feel at the time that you were making history going back to that theme? Did you? Oh, no, you no, weren't even no, thinking about no, that. No, I wasn't thinking about that. It was just, no, I was okay. not. All right. I was okay. not. It, I was not that introspective. <laughs> <laughs> we're just we got to no. do something here <laughs> yeah, yeah so when, I did go into law I mean I thought that that would be something that I could probably be better at um than some of the other options you know yeah. teaching or that sort of thing right um so and, and yeah. how did that work with your um your marriage because a lot of times even back then I don't know you know was there an expectation for you to kind of step back from your career or was that something that you worked too long as part that's of an interesting question Crystal I kind of grew up a little bit differently <laughs> I was always kind of like living on the edge so um uh while I will concede that for most of my contemporaries even my own family members yes that was the concern was to you know you do that was sort of the question you know, you get married and you have a family but I don't know that I I didn't have that kind of pressure on me um because I was me <laughs> so <laughs> that was like you know she's a little different <laughs> so she won't be the one to push for that so um and and so yeah I that was not I mean I knew I was gonna go to school yeah but how I wasn't you, rejecting, I wasn't rejecting the idea of marriage or anything like that, but it's just, and then, you know, I wasn't quite in that, um, what do you call it, that um, demographic, not the demographic, but in that uh, space of, you know, who's desirable, I, you know, yeah. dark skin and, you know, not the, you know, the physical well, attribute. Scarlet huh? hair now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Things have changed. But no, I, you know, so. I mean, even this is, I always tell people, I teach people, you know, like, actually, Black didn't become beautiful until 1968. So, you know, I mean, it's a phrase I used. It's not, I don't know if it's the truth, but, you know. Well, it all depends on who's framing it too, right? Like, you know, it's so interesting because it depends on which time frame we're talking about, who's talking about it, who has their voice, you know, we can go on. But um, can do you mind talking about how you met your husband and how that kind of like? Oh, okay. So that had nothing to do with any of this because <laughs> what I ended up what I had done was, in between college and and law school, um, I had a break to work, and you know I took a break because I didn't get into law school right away, and also because of the money. I mean, I had to you know earn money to go to law school. My parents so supported college, yourself? but then. But they helped with college, but it was just, okay, you've got a undergraduate degree. You should be able to mm, do this okay. on your own. Of course, okay. and, and law school wasn't nearly as expensive as it is now. So I went to work at United Airlines. I was a flight attendant. Um, Which class? Huh? <laughs> Which class did oh. you serve? Did you have to do oh. that? First class or middle class? Well, it depends on you know, depends on the on the on the flight and the seniority and your bidding and all of that. But uh, I worked, uh, I was, you know, I started at United in 1972. Hmm. And my husband worked for United Airlines, and that's how we met. Oh, okay. Yeah. And again, he was again in that group of very, very few black people in um the- in um uh what do I say, visible spaces, hmm. you know, in customer service, right. very few flight attendants at that time. I know the flight attendant class I came out I think there was maybe four or five you know black people in that class very few yeah. um wow 
And again, that that field was changing. So many fields were changing, and that was one of them. Um, you know, when he went to work at United, um, their policy at that time that blacks that were hard you only did certain things like sky cap and you know um sky cap and i think it was like loading or you know maintenance that kind of thing you're right right and uh he's one of the first few to go into a more public field which was you know in customer service and in-flight services like what he also do uh in-flight service supervising so we came here because of him okay his job moved him ah so yeah that so was kind of during so when i came here yeah when we came here um i was not how does that can't remember now I, anyway we came here because of him right but so you were still um flying with united when you moved to hawaii or you already no i had i had left and i was finishing up law school so i was ah, still kind okay. of just between law school and work and finding okay. something to do. And then we came here. So that okay. was in 79. Okay. So before we move to the Hawaii story, I wanted to just quickly ask you during your flight attendant years, was there much racism that, that you experienced being a flight attendant at that time? And how did that affect you? Uh, me personally, me yes. personally, uh, no, I did not. And, and I don't, maybe it's because I oblivious and chose to ignore you or just look at you in a different I think that may be but I did not me personally experience that um you know even at one of the times when I thought I would be experiencing it it was on a I think I told you about that. it was on a um uh, we used to do these things called junkets and we do them out of um you know whereas a group would charter the entire airplane of course these are smaller airplanes yeah and this junket group was going from Birmingham to um Birmingham to Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah. So they had the whole plane. And so we were thinking, you know, so we had to take the plane down to Birmingham because United didn't fly to Birmingham. So we did a, that's like my first time ever going to the South too, I'll tell you that. Yeah. I, so I never do that because of Emmett Till, that's another story. But um, so we took this, uh, we get to Birmingham and we're flying this plane load of people to Las Vegas. These are white people we're talking about mostly. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, yes. Las Vegas. Okay. And and you know, when you did the junkets, you got to pick the uh liquor, the alcohol that you wanted. You, you know, your choice of alcohol. Okay. So when we looked into the in the in the uh gallery area and saw that this group had selected only Jack Daniels and only uh Jack Daniels and beer, okay. we're like, okay, this is gonna be a very interesting trip. <laughs> <laughs> But it turned out fine. Uh, I was, I was, you know, ready for the worst, but right. you know, it, did, it, was okay. it worked out really well. They're actually a really good group. They were just preparing to go have a good time. But now you've so, really got me thinking about this really important question. Because so in my film, I, I question where um, the Asians sat on the bus because of, you know, seg the, the Jim Crow cart would be the white people in front, black people in the back on the plane during segregation. How did that work? Because I know, you know, let's say you're going to the South or from the South are, you know, obviously they don't have those regulations in the air. No, no, just, no, no, there's this, no, there is not that. That was just a private group that chartered the right. plane. But I'm saying, but like, if you're just, regular, just traveling on a regular traveling basis, yeah, no, you just buy a ticket and they assign you a seat. Yes, um, but the people from the South who are used to these segregated spaces were their problems. You know, I never heard of people. Well, you know, about I, that. you know what? This is a good question because, and I, that goes back to maybe my perception of things. If that, and, and, and this is probably how I would have thought of it anyway, if yeah. I had encountered it, 
that that's not my problem. That's your problem. Right. That you can't sit next to me is not my problem. Right. Then you don't have a seat. Yeah. But you know, it's just, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I, and I, and I guess I probably did encounter some things, but I think it's a, you know, what you, how you view it. It's not something that I'd have to, I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time getting that cross, but yeah. But I think it has to do with the way you view yourself and how yes. you see yourself in these situations. And so I did not carry myself in such a way that I was, I don't want to say I was past, not passive, but also, you know, very clear about who I am. Yes. Yes. How you, yes. I and think. so I think I, I think I've always had that. Right. And I think that was part of my growing up. That was even in that, in that setting of, you know, so much stuff in Chicago, you still were given that sense of know who you are. Right. So that when you're in these areas and in these spaces, you're not, you know, you're not called or made to feel, made to feel like you have to shrink back. Um, and I think that may be one of the distinctions I kind of learned from, you know, being, growing up where I grew up and maybe people who grow up in the South, because the, the remedy for us was not going to be that you're going to get lynched in Chicago because of that. Hmm. But maybe in the South, that's the sort of thing that would lead to that, right. which is gets me back to the end of till thing, which was, you know, something I remember vividly. I was a child. Right. I mean, this, in your was, lifetime, and it was just a few states down. I mean, this is all occurring at the same well, time. Well, yeah. And he, he, he lived, you know, he lived in Chicago. His, in fact, his mother was my uh, brother's teacher oh wow wow now she didn't talk about that when he was a kid growing up in school but but years still. later you know she didn't have take that she took a different name yeah um and people but she did tell her son's story yes and I remember true. seeing it on the front page of the paper and being totally traumatized as a child because mm, you're yes. thinking that if you go down south they're going to kill you yeah and so the thing was okay we'll never go down south that's it so that okay. I had no reason to because I had no family there either. But right, right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you're tapping into something that's you know uncomfortable and real and something that yeah. you can't dismiss. But let's let's hold on to that thought because we can't push the legacy of slavery um out of our conversations when we talk about um today's um issues. No. So let's no. hold on to that because that is why we still continue to do what we need to do to move these conversations forward. Uh people were just listening. I'm talking to Judge Sandra Sims here. Um some really important conversations around race relations, um, your lovely experience in the air. And then when we come back, let's talk about your life in Hawaii. So don't go away. Continuing our conversation with the first African-American female judge in Hawaii, retired Judge Sandra Sims. Welcome again. Um, so, you know, talking about uh, you were growing up in Chicago and then living through historical tragedies like Emmett Till, we mentioned just before the break. And then you moved to Hawaii, where a place where on the surface, we don't see this sort of anti-Black racism that you saw in Chicago right? Correct. And, and, and so I'm wondering how you applied your ways, your responsibility as you as a, a, a you know, as, as a judge and as a, as a woman of color, whatever you bring to who you are to Hawaii, how that, um, how that informed you because Hawaii wasn't, it's not Chicago. And, and what did you see and how did that shape what you wanted to focus on here in Hawaii? 
that's really that's really a good question. That's really important in understanding me. Uh, first off, like I said, my husband worked for United Airlines, and so he came here a lot. So he knew people here just because that's just he's a very personable person. He knew a lot of people here in the airline industry. The airline industry is a very different industry than than most. I don't know if people quite understand that, but it's a very uh, um, how would I describe it? They're pretty cosmopolitan, internationally focused people. And so the issues, I mean, I'm not to say there's no racism, but they kind of move around the world differently. Right. Okay. Their perspective because they move around more, the world. Yes, exactly. Their perspective. Multiple perspective. Like literally. They, you know, yeah. Literally. Yes, literally. <laughs> so um, so when I came here, um, I think I was I was saying, okay, I'm gonna, I got this law degree, so I want to um you know, get involved in um, the legal profession here. I was very, very fortunate to have worked briefly for a judge in Chicago who actually knew um, Judge Vitusik here in, in Hawaii. And he sort of gave me a self-introduction to her. And I had worked for him for, as a, while in law school. And so, so I had that as an, as an entree to meet. And she was extraordinarily gracious to me. Uh, I, I just met a series of just incredible people all along the way. So I did not encounter, um, I didn't encounter anything that had, it, it felt very freeing. I could be me, Sandra Sims with a law degree. She's here, let's see what she can do. And so um, at that time I had young children too. So mm. that kind of, you know, but I was very, very fortunate to get a job um, as a law clerk. Hmm. And uh, it was with Justice, uh, then Judge Hayashi, there was a new court being formed, the Intermediate Court of Appeals. It had just started in 1980, I guess it was, mm -hmm. 80, 81. And he was the chief judge for that court. And I just, I was reading the paper and I was seeing that I, I said to myself, I think I'd like to be a law clerk, not knowing what the process here entailed. Hmm. So I just wrote to all the judges and said, I wanted to be a law clerk and I sent them a writing sample. Oh. And I was interviewed. And, and most of them had already hired, you know, they're like, oh, we, thank you so much. They were very gracious. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Um, but uh, one did respond and say, uh, I think it was Judge. It was, I don't think, I know, it was just his pageant. And uh, I interviewed with him and I didn't get the job with him. In fact, he hired Mike Wilson, who's now on the Supreme Court. And so huh. subsequently I did get a call from Justice Hi Judge Hayashi and he asked me to come in and he offered me a job. So we, I went to work for him. So it was the three of them, it was Judge Hayashi, Judge Paget, and Judge Burns. And then the three law clerks. It was a very small group, three judges, three law clerks, and three secretaries. And that was my first job. Huh. And it was great. It's, I still say that's the best job I ever had. <laughs> it's still you, you had the vision to knock on their doors to ask. Uh, or, or the vision or the boldness or just oh. <laughs> not knowing any better. <laughs> but you need to do that in life, right? I mean, if you had to give one tip to these young college students, how would you tell them to, 
you know, to go out there, you know, because nowadays, for, I mean, so you know what, it's go for what you want. I mean, you don't necessarily look at, at barriers. You kind of like, is this what I want to do? Well, then let's just go in and find out what it is. I, 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 um, I actually kind of learned, I, that's, yeah, that's my philosophy. It's just like, if you, if that's what you want, then go for it. Don't look at the things that stand in your way. Yeah. Go for the thing that you want. And then, you know, yeah. I take a lesson from my, from my, from my daughter who was a, was a, a track athlete, very prominent track, track athlete here in Hawaii. She was born and grew up here. And that was one of the things she always said about going, you know, racing was like, I'm not, cause she was a hurdler. So I'm not looking at the stuff in front of me. I'm kind of looking at the finish line because that's where I'm going. Oh, that's uh, the greatest metaphor. I was thinking about that and you hear you say it. Yeah. 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 I was like, she's always like, oh, uh, you know, yeah. I could just stop at every one of these hurdles and go, let me hop over it. It's like, no. she actually had ex explained to me how there's certain steps. She did an, an exact number of steps between each hurdle. And then that taught you when to raise your leg. Wow. And you count and you're just going to the end. So, yeah. but that, I mean, that is, I, and I, and I think if there is a, a metaphor for life, it is that it's just, Go for what you want. Uh, if you spend time looking at obstacles, you'll just you'll just fold. I remember some early conversations I had with people when I first got on the bench, and that was always one of the questions that students always ask: What are the obstacles? I'm like, I I don't view life in terms I don't view life in terms of what the obstacles. It's like, what am I trying to do here? Let's go for that. <laughs> then you know you could say, oh, I can't do it because I'm black. I'm female. I you know, I'm dark skin. I don't have straight hair. I could, you could say all those things, but, and then you'll just say, I can't do it. Yeah. Right. So it goes back to how you see yourself and, and how you, you really, it, it really you is, it really is important to just, I, I think that's the most important lesson for life is how you're seeing yourself and how you go yeah. about doing those things. You have to just, yeah, I mean, there, and I'm fortunate because I had, um, you know, family and community support that said, that's what you do. Right. So support system is important. You know, getting that confidence. Yeah. Not everybody, not everybody has, that. has so, it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I recognize that. But I think if I can give any lesson, it's going to be that. Yeah. That, you know, Sandra, that makes me think about, you know, kind of prying in a little bit more into your work um, as a judge is from from your position when you see these cases that are presented to you and you know I'm going to specifically focus on the girls because I wanted to touch on you know the idea of the incarceration of, of girls of color which has been uh, apparently mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In incredibly reduced right in last month there was yeah a, was a, yeah yeah, it has been zero. Did they actually say there was zero? It's zero. It's in here in Hawaii for in this moment in time. It is zero, and right. it is the only place in the country where that is occurring. Now that's interesting, though. So I'm wondering whether how this is framed. First of all, first of for initially, yes, it's a celebratory kind of a announcement that there uh -huh, are zero uh -huh. cases of of young adolescent females incarcerated right now in Hawaii but at the same time I wonder how much is just an article framing something that we're boasting up uh, something that we've achieved but then what's all the stuff behind it like what are we what are we not addressing so for example um, previously when young women were incarcerated um, can you talk a little bit about about the reasons they were um, I, you know, I didn't do so much in family court. I, well, I, my work was primarily in criminal 
well, always was a criminal, but I think important piece of it uh, had to do with how we viewed, how we changed our view of what it meant for um, young girls to be involved in, in quote, juvenile matters. And we're talking about primarily truancy and runaways. Right. And the approach primarily was historically has been if you're running away, our job is to catch you and bring you back. And, you know, these sort of status offenses and let's bring you back in. Or if you're uh, not going to school, we're just going to chase you down and make you go to school. When the real question should have been, and it is now being asked more, it's like, what are you running away from? Yes. As opposed to just saying you've run away. And we find, and you know, what we're uncovering more and more and more, is there some trauma involved? Absolutely. And they're running from, you know, you don't just 14 decide I'm going to just get up and exactly. leave home. Something has happened. Yeah. And we, and I think what we started to see was more focus being directed at that. And then we're directing our programs at that rather than just saying you did something wrong. Yeah. And, you know, Karen Radius was the uh, family court judge who started girls court. Um, we had one of the first girls courts in the country. Oh. And that was kind of focus. It was like, well, what, what, what's going on with the girls that we need to really pay attention to? And I think that sort of began that discussion and hmm. began that new focus that kind of focused on. And then, you know, we have the whole notion of, you know, trafficking. And we just said, oh, they're. And what I saw on the criminal side, you know, you see, oh, she's a prostitute. Let's just, you know, not understanding, at least in those early times in the 90s, early 90s, that these young women were being trafficked. Mm. We didn't have that even in our conversation. Mm. That wasn't even there. It was just like, she's, she's a prostitute. Let's just arrest her for prostitution. Yeah. And no focus, no, no interest, no pay attention to the to the Johns or those who are doing, or the ones that are pushing, um, yeah. pushing this. Yeah. And so when we've started to take a different look at what's going on in these girls and young women's lives, I think that's enabled us to kind of take a very different approach and to really do, do, do programs and look at how we can make those changes. What, you know, like what we're doing in Swaptimus, you're familiar with that, but we're not the only organization, but there, I think that approach changed where we have to go look at, what's going on and what's happening to our girls rather than what did you do wrong? Yeah, yeah, context is everything. And, you know, to bring up the critical issue of mental health, you know, it's been- And that, a, yes. Right, in the last couple of years too, especially with COVID, you know, the young students oh, yeah. are really going through a lot of mental health oh, yeah. uh, issues that we don't seem to address. And then there's like a lack of uh, staff for this and people are wasn't there like a recent protest against it because they're just saying this is overwhelming for the mental it's health it's overwhelming and i think we this is an unprecedented error i think what we've done also is we've um i had the opportunity to serve on i still am on the board for the mental health america of hawaii and also was mm -hmm. spent several years this is all after the bench with the state council on mental health so you know getting a perspective on and of course, you dealt with it in criminal court as well. You, you see the mental health issues coming up. So, and to kind of see that and to recognize that this is something that as a society, we've not paid a lot of attention to. Yeah. Because there's all this stigma associated with it, particularly within, in, you know, communities of color. There's always this, mm. been this stigma. Don't talk about those things. I mean, 
I mean, even in, you know, certainly in the black community and in other communities of color, it's like, we don't talk about those things. We don't yeah. talk about those things. And we all can probably reach back to an experience in our life where something occurred to maybe a family member or something yeah, of that we now know. Right. The, the context. Was a, was, we, can, we can reach back and yeah. be like, oh my God, yeah, that and was mental illness or that was domestic violence. Right. Yeah, no, we need to bring those conversations in. And also because there's an abstract concept, you know, mental health is something you don't see, right? And and then some action takes place and some crime takes place and then you see that and then you target that and focus on the- You target that thing as opposed to going at the underlying um, issue. So fortunately we're seeing more attention paid to that, but then we don't have the resources to address them all. Well, I think so, bringing visibility to this issue yeah. um, and the urgency of the support yeah. that needs to be come in is a, is a and that's step. and that's gonna and that's taking that's beginning to take place more and more and yeah, that'll be I feel that. an important yeah. thing going forward that we recognize that we've got to pay attention to that yes too. absolutely yeah. so I mean again sorry the time is up but I would love to hear more of your stories if we wanted to leave our listeners with something today just to cheer up their uh, Tuesday afternoon, um, what would you like to share? Well, I'm going to assume your listeners are young people. Oh, we've got all kinds. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, but I think for students that, and you're beginning the new year, I think it's important that you understand and, and, and be clear and about if you're setting goals to go for it. I think, I think the future of our country and the future of our world is really in the hands of our young people. And I think there are more, they have more, um, um, how can I put this? Abilities to move issues forward simply, well, because of the technology, being comfortable with the technology, understanding the issues and not having so much baggage (laughs) as as those of us, you know, who are older may have had. So you're in a much better position to really make change. And I think Many of our young people are doing it. We're seeing it on the, on the area of, you know, what's happening in the areas of gun violence. Kids are taking, I won't say kids, but young people are taking the lead in that. Yeah. With regard to women's women's rights, young women are taking the lead in Absolutely. that. And not just young women, but young people generally yeah. are taking the lead. We had a huge Black Lives Matter rally here in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it was young people. It's it was young people. And they did it via Instagram. Go figure. Yeah. They had 10,000 people are. come to yeah, rally. I was part of that. You're like, I mean, so, you know, I, when you see things like that, you feel like, okay, we can do it. We're going to be all right. I think so, too. We're going to be all right. And thank you for paving the path. So this is first African-American female judge in Hawaii, retired Judge Sandra Sims. Thank you so much for your conversations. Oh, thank you, Crystal. It's been fun talking with you.